Well, again, good morning and welcome to Center Church. If I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve uh, as the lead pastor here. And I am really thankful that you've joined us. And hopefully, again, you are in a warm place and you've got some loved ones with you. Or maybe you're watching alone and you've tagged some people to watch with you. You shared the stream. Thank you for doing that. Um, it's still a privilege that we get to gather even in this way. Uh, in a couple months that are going to be much colder than these months, in a couple months, Lindsay and I will celebrate seven years of marriage, which for some of you is like, oh my goodness, seven years. And others of you are like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm at 45 or 50, and we respect that. Uh, here's what I want to say about the last seven years of marriage. I have grown a lot. I've grown up a lot. Lindsay was already mature and already well-formed in her thinking and marriage behavior uh, right as we got married. And she's obviously grown a lot too. But there's some things I look back on seven years ago and we would have all collectively rolled our eyes at me that I did. Uh, number one, I think about saying I do, getting married, going on a honeymoon, and kind of believing this is going to be pretty easy. <laughs> if, if this is all it is, is sitting on a beach and eating tacos, like, yeah, I can do that if that's what marriage is going to be like. What's really interesting, though, is as you fast forward uh, a couple weeks after our honeymoon, we're doing our first load of laundry together. And that's where it all started to get really, really interesting. <laughs> we, we do this load of laundry, and I said, I'm going to win some husband points. I am going to fold the laundry. And so I get it all out of the dryer. I dump the basket out onto our bed, and I start sorting the laundry. I start matching the socks, folding the shirts, folding the towels, and folding my jeans and all that kind of stuff. Well, Lindsay walks in just a few minutes after this and basically asks the question, are you kidding me? I wasn't sure why she was asking the question, uh, so I had to ask for some clarification. I said, what do you mean, are you kidding me? Well, she said, did you literally just fold and match all of your laundry and leave mine on the side? And that's true. That's exactly what I did. I left it all to the side. I thought, because I had been single for the first 20-something years of my life, I decided I just need to fold mine and make sure mine's good. I'll put it away and then she'll come do hers. Well, she walked in with a very different expectation of what that was gonna be like. Clearly I had missed something and she had missed something, at least in the communication because I had no idea the expectation of her on me. And so finally uh, we figured out, I fold all of our laundry, put it away, all is good. And really, to be honest, that was the first and very last argument we've ever had. Like seven years later, we're good. And so I don't know what your marriage is like, but mine has been perfect. No, I'm just kidding. It's not been perfect, but I know how to do laundry at least. All right. So um, what's really interesting is I reflect on stories like that, and there were numerous in the first couple, <laughs> even weeks of being married. I reflect on that, and it was really clear that I had missed something. I had missed that I was supposed to do laundry together. Like that was the whole point of doing it. Uh, sometimes missing something has really small implications, like it's, just, it's an argument with a spouse, it's forgetting an order, it's sending someone the wrong email. It's those kind of things. Those are small. But you know what it's like to miss something in a serious way that has real consequences. You know what it's like to be on the other side of a divorce or a breakup or a fractured relationship in the workplace and just feel like, am I missing something? Did I miss something along the way? Did my significant other miss something along the way? And when you miss something in relationships, there's incredible pain that can result from that. I think about some of you who walked through the pain 
and the struggle of job loss in this season. And, and you, on the other side of those job losses and those, uh, those termination papers and the severance packages, you have to wonder to yourself sometimes, did I miss something? I thought I was here and I'm clearly not. And now I don't have a job and now I'm trying to figure out what's my next step. When you lose a job, there's that question of, am I missing something? Fast forward to some of you who are in the stage of parenting right now, which are trying to raise middle and high school students. And there's probably a lot of moments where you are asking yourself, am I missing something here? I thought this is what I was supposed to be doing and I'm doing that, but it's not resulting in the same kind of results that I was hoping for. Uh, let's take it out onto a spiritual level and ask the question, what if Christians in this era of our, of our world and in our culture, what if we're missing something? What if God's actually wanting to do more and different than some of the things that we're tending to focus on in our own culture, some of the things that I get trapped into focusing on? What if Jesus wants to tell us today through the scripture, you're missing something? You, you have most of the picture, but you're missing a critical Peace in the midst of COVID spikes and election cycles and news media, you can't scroll through Facebook without finding someone who's in an argument about something. In that world, in that time, are we missing something? If you travel with me to the book of Luke, we've been in this series called Friend of Sinners, and Luke 19 is probably one of the most famous sinner stories we have in the Gospels. And I want to take you there in Luke 19 and start right away in verse 1. Here's what Luke writes about this story. He says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Jesus was on the way somewhere. He enters Jericho, this prosperous nation, a prosperous town. He's passing through the town, probably teaching, maybe even healing as we go. Here in verse 2 is what Luke writes. He says, a man was there. And there, obviously there are people there, right? There's a lot of people there. But he points out a specific person. He says a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Important details. Luke doesn't leave anything out. He says he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. This is not unlike a lot of the stories in Luke. There were people on the fringes who wanted to experience something that Jesus had to offer They'd seen other rabbis, they'd seen other people claim to be the Messiah, but there was something unique and different about Jesus. There's something that all the other rabbis had missed that Jesus had seemed to capture. And so Jesus, or Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. For the purpose of this story, we're just going to call him Zach. Zach wanted to see who Jesus was. But there was an issue Zach had. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but Luke writes, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now, I'm 6'5", so it's hard for me to even understand what it feels like to be short. I'm just kidding. I'm not 6'5". I am like almost the inverse of that. So uh, Zacchaeus was short. He couldn't see. He didn't understand. He had a physical limitation. And so Zacchaeus, like any bold short guy would do, decides, I'm going to run ahead and climb a tree. Like I'm going to get a better vantage point. So that's exactly what he does. He climbs a sycamore fig tree. And he looks over the crowd since, since Jesus was coming that way, is what Luke writes. He knew Jesus was on the way. What I think is really fascinating about this story is it's just full of irony. And in Luke, Jesus is kind of nicknamed, it's not necessarily positive, but Luke was nicknamed a friend, or Jesus was nicknamed a friend of sinners. This story is no different. What's interesting that Luke captures in our, in our story today is that 
he writes that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector, which means that he was one of the most hated people by the Jews in his time. To get to chief tax collector status meant a couple things. Number one, you were already wealthy because you had enough resources to outbribe all the other Jewish people to be a tax collector. Being a tax collector meant you got to cheat people out of money. Being a tax collector meant you had betrayed your own Jewish people and sided with the Romans so that they would enforce these harsh tax laws that made no sense. And yet the Jews couldn't do anything about it. You think about if you had lost yearly wages, if you had to send your kids to a worse school, if you didn't have the ability to upgrade your camel that year because someone like Zach had cheated you out of your money, you would hate that person. You would have at least some serious contempt in your heart when you saw someone like Zach walking down the street. It's also interesting that Luke notes that Zach was short because not only is there a physical obstacle to that, uh, let me put it this way. I am not 6'5", as I confessed. I'm a little bit shorter than that. But what's interesting is, have you ever seen someone in your world try to overcompensate for their height? I'm not naming any names. I'm not asking you to point to the person next to you. I'm just saying, have you ever seen someone try to do that? There's, there's a little bit of a sense in the text that Luke is trying to communicate. Zach had something to prove, and he was willing to do some pretty horrible things to his fellow Jews and neighbors to get that done. As you keep reading in verse 5, here's what happens. And this is not what you'd expect to happen in the story. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he reaches this tree, he looks up and said to him, Zach, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. Like, come down right now. I'm going to stay at your house today. So Zach comes down at once and he welcomes Jesus gladly, it says. He welcomes him gladly. Verse 7, verse 7 is a perfect example in the Gospels of how all of us would respond if this happened to us. We are the crowd in this story in so many ways. Verse 7, this is what Luke writes. All of the people saw this and began to mutter. You know, like that hush, kind of gossipy tone that you and I tend to use sometimes. They began to mutter, and this is what they say. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus is rabbi, who's supposed to be well, well esteemed, respected, healed people, taught like no one else had taught, traveled and, and done miracles throughout the regions of Judea, 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 I'll try it one more time, and Galilee and Jerusalem, all these major epicenters of the Israelite world. And yet he's now stepping into the house of someone who's a cheater and a liar clearly a sinner, but this is how Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus responds. They obviously get to Zacchaeus' house. Zach stands up and says to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, which is the most obvious statement Zach makes in this story, he has multiple times over, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Four times. Jesus says to him, and I think this is something for us to capture. He says, today, right now, in your midst, salvation has come to this house. 
Remember our story a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus on the heels of one of these sinner interactions and, and this grace moment says, today the kingdom of God's here in your midst. It's right here. It's arrived in my person. It's who I am. I bring the kingdom of God. He says, because this man too is a son of Abraham, which if you were a Jew, you are totally offended by this point. Because sons of Abraham was something reserved for the Jews. You, that was like your family patriarch. It was like the line you pointed back to says, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a real, bona fide, dyed-in-the-wool Jew. Zacchaeus is not. He's a tax collector. He sides with the Romans. He's politically affiliated way differently than we are. It doesn't make any sense that you would come into his house and then Jesus drops this bomb in verse 10. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. The sinners. The people who are far from him. The people who don't agree with the Jewish party at the time. The people who didn't see Zach as a potential for grace. All they saw was tax collector, sinner, cheater. Wealthy but not generous. That's what they saw when they looked at someone like Zach. And Jesus instead sees someone who's lost. Someone who just can't find their way back without Jesus stepping in and showing them what the gospel is really like. Let's get practical. Thanksgiving is in a couple weeks. It is literally, I think, tied for my favorite, favorite, like my very favorite holiday. I love the food of Thanksgiving. It's one of the few times in our, in our year that our entire immediate family gets into the same house. I love it. There's so many things that are good about it. Uh, for you, think about your Thanksgiving table. Maybe it's smaller this year. Maybe it's bigger this year. Regardless, as you think about that, what Jesus does by stepping into Zach's house, not just the conversation, but the how of what he does, like the actual method and sits in his house and clearly is going to dine with him and, and sharing these intimate conversations with Zach. This would be the cultural equivalent for some of you as inviting the founding members of Black Lives Matter over to your Thanksgiving dinner. And welcoming them, kissing them on the cheek, saying, I'm so glad that you're here. Now, some of you are properly offended already, and maybe you're, but keep watching, like there's more. Some of you, what this story really means in our cultural context would mean that you invite the, the Make America Great Again hat guy over to your house for Thanksgiving dinner. You invite that guy with the, the Trump flags in the back of their truck. Like you invite those guys over and say, hey, I want to have you over for Thanksgiving dinner. You can lay on my couch and watch some football. Like seconds, go for it, take some stuff home. Like that is what is happening. The Jews are just mind blown at the fact that Jesus would invite that kind of person over for dinner. And not only that, but Zacchaeus has this almost emotive response to this conversation between him and Jesus. And the disciples probably are watching too. The disciples are not politically aligned here. They are zealots, which are kind of the rebels of the culture. They are made up of tax collectors. There's already a tax collector in their midst named Matthew. He's there watching this all take place with Zach and probably really curious how this turnout is going to go. There's Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party right in. I mean, you got all the people there watching this scenario take place. What happens is Zach has this grace encounter with the friend of sinners. Changes everything. And Luke is not just writing this story to say, isn't that a great story for Zach? He's trying to write to say, friends, this is what the gospel looks like. Here's the truth of this story. How we demonstrate the gospel, it is the gospel. 
the how of how we communicate God's love, how we show it in our actual lives, how we treat people who are different than us, how we view people who vote different or look different or think different or spend money different, how we approach those people. Essentially, it is the gospel message. The gospel is not just these facts and truth statement out here about what Jesus has done. It is a real living demonstration by you and by me that this is what Jesus is like. This is what the friend of sinners is like. So this week at the voting center, how we demonstrate the gospel is the gospel. In the next couple of weeks at the Thanksgiving table, when you sit with family that may disagree with you about certain things, how you and I demonstrate the gospel, it is the gospel. For the people in our community who are looking at Center Church and saying, are they, are they legit? Do they really love Jesus the way that they say? Has Jesus really changed them the way that they're saying that they've been changed? Are they really after what Jesus is after? They're looking at our lives and how we demonstrate the gospel, it is the gospel. How I interact with someone this week uh, in a cash register or at the gas station or at a fast food place, how we interact with those people, that is the gospel message to them. It's not just handing them a track anymore. It's actually how you and I demonstrate the love and the compassion of Jesus. The how really, really matters. Don't believe me? If you have a significant other or are married in the, in the room and you're watching this online, try replacing like a heartfelt conversation, date nights, flowers, a loving touch. Replace all of those things and just write I love you on a napkin for a year. Just see how that goes. The how actually matters. Uh, I, I know Lindsay well enough is if I just replace saying I love you every day to her with just kind of a quick write on a paper towel on this same towel I'd use to clean up a mess in the kitchen, if that was how I decided that was my new how, that wouldn't go over very well because the method actually does matter. The method changes the message I'm trying to communicate, which is why it's so powerful. This this truth encounter that Zach has with Jesus is not just about facts and a conversation. The fact that Jesus stepped into his house and wanted to eat with him, a chief tax collector, is why Zach responds so emotionally to this on such a heart level. It says that he gave back four times the amount and gave half of his wealth away to the poor, the people who are needy in his community, the people that he had cheated out of money. Levitical law for an Israelite, for a good Jew, if you stole something, you had to give back the exact amount plus 20%. You can read that in the book of Leviticus. That was kind of the, the original law God had given his people. said, if you steal something, you give back 120% of that back. And Zach doesn't do that. Zach gives back four times the amount that he had stolen. There is a a real encounter with grace here that just overflows in Zach's life. He gives way beyond what the law required because how we demonstrate the gospel, it is the gospel. Zach had his life turned around and changed by the friend of sinners. Can I make this real? As I was thinking and just praying through this morning, and it's obviously different from a camera, but I hope that you hear my heart on this. Really, God, I think, pressed on me two reflections about just a moment we're in culturally and one reminder. Two reflections, one reminder. And reflection number one. This week, in a couple days, how we vote is not as important as how we love those who vote different than us. 
It's not that voting doesn't matter. If you have the ability to vote, you need to vote. That is your civic, and I would say in some way your godly responsibility. Get out if you haven't already and vote. That's, that's my plan. I plan to vote. But how I love the person who votes differently than me is infinitely more important because that is what Jesus measures. Not that voting is not important, not that you shouldn't pray and make real critical decisions about who needs to be our next president, our elected officials. You need to go do that. But how we love those who, who are voting differently or think differently or process our world differently is of utmost importance. That is what the world will measure for us as Jesus followers. Reflection number two, if we have to wait until we politically align to be the church, we should pack it up and go home. That's not gonna happen. For us to just wait until everyone agrees to, to worship together and to seek out God's mission and to pursue zero lives unchanged, friends, we might as well pack it up and do something else. That's not going to happen, nor should it happen. In fact, Jesus' disciples, as I said, were made up of people who politically were on all sides of the map. And yet, the majority of them died for this cause. They gave their lives for this kingdom of God that was breaking into the earth, not because it finally aligned with them politically. They had to lay those aside in some ways to take up the cross of Christ. If you have to wait till that happens, we might as well do something else. And one reminder, historically, and it's still true in the global church today, Christianity often flourishes even when it is not at the center of power. God doesn't need our, our government structures all the time to do what he wants to do. Often he sometimes chooses to circumvent those structures through a people that are very peculiar and very weird and very countercultural called the church. He often uses us in ways that the culture just doesn't have the capacity for, that a government can't actually achieve, because when you and I are solely focused on how we demonstrate the gospel, it often changes the communities that we're a part of. And if we have to wait till all of those things click into place and we finally get back to the power seat in our community, it's, it's just a waste of time. We may never get there. And even if we did get there, there is still an opportunity despite that. Because the majority of people in our church, people just like you, we don't have a lot of political influence besides voting. We could, in, we could invest all of our time in that or we could say, what can I do tomorrow? Who can I change today? Who can I pray for? Who can I encourage? Who can I demonstrate radical kindness and generosity? It's unexpected. Who's different than me that I can begin praying for? Friends, that is the stuff that changes how our culture perceives actual good news, how we demonstrate that. It is that. That is the gospel. I was reading uh, this week. Some of you know I'm in the middle of my master's degree and uh, it's been a really interesting ride. Number one, to figure out, wow, I need to get more organized. <laughs> Number two, wow, it's a lot of work to go back to school after being out of it for a while. And some of you know the pain. Uh, one of the stories that I had to read in a textbook this week was by Justin the Martyr. Justin the Martyr, as you may gather, was a martyr for the Christian faith in the very first couple centuries of the church he wrote this in a reflection about how they had to interact with people who were persecuting them and harassing them as the early church. And this is what he says. We who formerly treasured money and possessions more than anything else now hand over everything we have to a treasury for all and we share it with everyone who needs it. We who formerly hated and murdered one another 
now live together and we share the same table. We pray for our enemies and we try to win those who hate us. This is what defined the early church. If I can take a really bold step as a amateur historian, I can probably proudly say that I don't know if we would be here today without examples like Justin's, without moments in which the church had to recognize, all right, here's the the pinch points of our culture. Here's the pain. Here's where I feel the tension uncomfortable. I'm going to be willing to wade into into that in the way no one else will because how I demonstrate the gospel, it is the gospel. It is how people taste and see that the Lord is good. It's through my life. It's through your life. It's through your family. It's through your workplace. It's through your influence that people truly encounter that. And so I want to close with a simple question. Today, wherever you're at, what's your how? What this week is going to be a way that you and I decide to demonstrate that gospel message, to demonstrate the good news that Jesus has transformed and rescued and saved us. And it's not just something we post. It's not just something we tell somebody. It's not something we hand somebody. It actually has to be embodied in who you and I are. Here's why I know that, because that's exactly what God did for us. God said, it's not enough that they just know the law. It's not enough that they just know that that they're not right with God and they need to get right with God. I'm going to send a person. I'm gonna send my own son so that you can know what the gospel really looks like. Not just a bunch of facts or truth. You actually get to see Jesus in the flesh. You get to see God with skin and bones on and he's gonna die and he's gonna be raised to life so that you and I can taste and see the good news for ourselves, friends. That's the gospel. That's why we do what we do. And so I don't know what your how is like this week. I don't know what the call is. I don't know what your burden is. Maybe God is pressing a name or situation or an event or a meeting on your mind right now. And you know, that's the how. That's how I've got to do this. But wherever you're at, I'm praying and I've prayed up into this moment that the spirit would lead you to that how and give you the courage and boldness to step out and do it. So here's what I want to do. I want to take 30 seconds. 30 seconds right where you're at. And I want to give you time to process. Because on top of meetings, on top of voting, on top of responsibilities and sports and and all of your commitments that you have in your calendar, there's a God who wants to speak to you today and invite you into more. So I wanna take 30 seconds and then we're gonna respond and sing and just remind ourselves of who our King really is. And then we're gonna close out our time. So let's take 30 seconds, pray, respond, engage God's spirit. Even in the weirdness of the moment you're in sitting at home or with kids running around, I just wanna invite you, try to grab some of that time and allow God to speak to you today. Father, wherever we are at, we right now surrender to you. And we ask that as a people, as students and disciples of you and your way, that you would allow us to taste 
and to experience and to feel the gospel, the good news. I thank you that in Zach's story and in my story and the people on the stage's story that that it wasn't just knowing about you, it was really knowing you that changed us. And I pray that for the person watching this right now and engaging this, maybe they don't have a relationship with you. God, I pray today would be a day they draw a line in the sand, they cross over and say, I wanna surrender my life to that kind of God too. I wanna lay down my fears and anxieties about the future my broken and sinful ways of thinking and living. And I want to hand them over to a God who just constantly tosses out grace and mercy and compassion over me. I pray that that would start to change today. And I pray for our church, that those of us who call ourselves disciples of you and followers of you, we have a responsibility this week to not just know what is our how, how are we going to demonstrate this good news to in the, the people around us, the workplace that we're in, the voting booth, but we would actually know that you are with us in that and that there would be a real sense of your empowerment and your courage and boldness in our lives. Thank you again for these moments. We lay down all other kingdoms, all other idols, all other patterns that wanna take your place and we just say, you are our king. We surrender to you and ask that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come right here in our church, in our lives, in our families as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.